This episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and so Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com slash electric. So I think for Houston, my advice really is, you know, in addition to everything that my colleagues are talking about here about the transition, what can Houston do to position itself to, to be a, a leader in producing the 68 million barrels we're still going to need in, in 2040, right? And I think investors will be looking for resources that are uh, low cost, low risk, and low carbon on the oil and gas side. Is there a role for oil and gas companies in a green economic recovery? Can fossil fuel firms meaningfully decarbonize their businesses while creating new jobs in a struggling economy and volatile energy market? We hear from a panel of experts, including oil and gas giant BP, in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. This week, my Democrat and Republican co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton, are off. So, in their absence, I'm going to share a super informative discussion I had with a panel of experts on how a green stimulus package in the wake of COVID-19 could help with the oil and gas industry's decarbonization efforts. As a quick refresher, the oil and gas industry was hit hard by COVID. Demand cratered as millions of people around the world canceled travel plans, stopped commuting, and simply stayed home to curb the spread of the virus. Oil prices were already tanking as the pandemic hit due to a price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. At the same time, oil and gas companies were under mounting policy and investor pressure to transition away from fossil fuel production toward cleaner energy technologies. That includes renewables and electric vehicles, but also carbon capture, hydrogen, methane-reducing technologies, and energy efficiency solutions. Now, as countries seek to stabilize their economies and get people back to work, and investors look for more environmentally friendly growth opportunities, there's an open question as to what role oil and gas companies will play in the clean energy transition and growing their new low-carbon lines of business. The investor piece is particularly interesting. Shareholders are putting pressure on oil and gas companies to clean up their act and account for climate risks. Other investors and big pension funds, like the UK's National Employment Savings Trust, are divesting from fossil fuels, some entirely, while capital markets are hungry for greener entities to put their money into. We're taking a closer look at this divest-invest trend in Political Climate's miniseries that we're calling Ditched, Fossil Fuels, Money Flows, and the Greening of Finance, which airs on Mondays. So if you're interested in this topic, I hope you'll download those episodes. The conversation you're about to hear isn't exclusively about the role of the financial sector in tackling climate change, but it very much informs that discussion with a look at how oil and gas companies are reforming their businesses to align with climate goals. 
We'll be circling back on how the divestment movement and growing investor pressure is affecting oil and gas companies a little later on in the Ditched miniseries. In this episode, I wanted to share a conversation in full that I had with four energy experts. Cindy Yielding, Senior Vice President at BP America. Gavin Dillingham, Clean Energy Policy Program Director at Houston Advanced Energy Research Center. Alex Dewar, Senior Director at the Boston Consulting Group Center for Energy Impact. And RJ Johnston, Managing Director for Energy, Climate and Resources at the Eurasia Group. This discussion was originally recorded in late July for a live event hosted by the Atlantic Council and the Center for Houston's Future, and is being republished here on Political Climate with permission. Because it was recorded live, you will hear a few moments of subpar audio, but the content is compelling. Cindy Yielding outlines BP's net zero emissions by 2050 goal, which serves as a handy refresher ahead of BP's Investor Day later in September, where the company is expected to reveal more information about its climate plan. Cindy also addresses recent oil and gas company write-downs and layoffs, and how BP is working to support local communities. Other speakers weigh in on how the city of Houston, a hub of the U.S. oil and gas industry, can adapt to changes within the energy sector and increase resilience while promoting clean energy, and on how government policy is influencing oil and gas companies, as well as the prospects of a green recovery. The last thing I want to say before turning to the meat of the show is that if you're looking for an honest breakdown of the trade-offs and hard truths on the energy transition in Alberta, Canada, and beyond, then you need to check out Energy versus Climate, a live interactive webinar, podcast, and occasional newsletter from energy experts David Keith, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and Ed Whittingham. In many ways, Alberta is a canary in the coal mine for the collision between climate and jobs, but it can also be a model for successfully managing that disruption. You can check out Energy versus Climate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and sign up to get information about their live webinars at energyvsclimate.substack.com. Okay, okay, enough with the preamble, I know. Here's a conversation on green stimulus and the role of oil and gas in the energy transition. Let's jump right in. Um, Gavin, I'd like to start with you because, you know, Hark is based in Houston and we're having a Texas-focused uh, conversation in part today. So begin by giving us a little bit more uh, detail on your work at Hark, but then give us a brief overview of how you're thinking about the intersection of a green stimulus in the wake of COVID-19 and how that could spur efforts of the oil and gas industry to advance the low-carbon energy transition and maybe how this would affect Houston specifically. So take a few minutes to answer that and then we'll go to our other panelists. Thank you. So the Houston Advanced Research Center, also known as HARC, is a research institute located in the woodlands just north of Houston. And we focus on a variety of air, energy, and water type issues, sustainability type research questions, um, really focused in Texas as well as along the Texas Gulf Coast. Um, most of the work that I focus on is more on the uh, clean energy side, uh, decarbonization of the grid, as well as um, energy resilience, how to improve the resilience of our power sector um, as we witness a growing number of extreme weather events. And so we do a lot of work with um, developing as a, and working as a research um, management organization where we build and bring together large teams, large groups of collaborators to kind of answer some of these more difficult questions. Some of the work we're looking at right now is really 
developing a, a model that allows us to downscale um, climate risk, both transitional risk and physical climate risk impacts to the, to the power sector across the United States. So I'm very excited to, to be here and have this opportunity. So to, to kind of respond to your first question here, really what we're looking at is, you know, when we're looking at the in respect to COVID-19 and the green stimulus, we really need to be looking at things that can help on the near term. There's been a significant amount of job losses. Um, so we need to look at the near-term recovery as well as mid and long-term industry change and kind of that decarbonization energy transition effort. Much in line with kind of what we're discussing today, um, there's actually three articles in the Houston Chronicle that kind of point directly to this need for stimulus and change in the market. Um, one was focused specifically on kind of a contrasting between Tesla and ExxonMobil and the amount of research and development activity that's happening focused on decarbonization as well as one company that's focusing more on kind of maintaining the status quo to some degree and how are those going to come out and then. Um, a couple other articles, the other two articles really focused on suggesting that maybe the status quo is not ideal. There needs to be a more rapid transition happening. There needs to be a greater movement forward. And one focused more specifically on banks reducing investment in oil and gas and de-risking their balance sheets. Um, the other one talked more specifically in climate risk in general both transition risk versus decarbonization and the impacts that could happen there, as well as um, growing wariness of investors. Um, BlackRock, as, as many of you probably know, made these significant investment or announcements about uh, pulling back in some of their investments or wanting greater disclosure of physical climate risk, and so largely extreme weather risk, um, both chronic and long-term type risks happening to the, to the, to the portfolios that they manage and, and, and monitor as such. So, um, really just interesting to see that happening in the Chronicle this morning, just very apropos to what we're looking at today. There's two things that I really want to continue to emphasize, that anything that comes out that, that's going to be a green stimulus really needs to look at physical climate risk to some degree. It's a growing issue. It's a growing concern. Um, you look at the recent uh, data coming out of NOAA about billion-dollar disaster events already in 2020. As of this month, there's been 10 um, climate disaster, extreme weather events, that over a billion dollars in the United States. When you look at the trends over since uh, over the last couple decades, well, since 1980 to 2019, we've seen about six to seven of these extreme weather events happening. When you just look at 2015 to 2019, there's been on average 14 of these billion dollar events. And so we're seeing these in gro growing amount of extreme weather risk uh, happening here. And we really need to as we transition our economy and look to ways in which to decarbonize, make sure we're looking at both the greenhouse gas mitigation, and the physical climate risk side of things. The other just last piece you want to cover here is how when we make this decarbonization, how when we make this energy transition, we focus on just transition. We focus on the, the, the employees, the people that are involved in this industry and making sure that they have an opportunity to participate, especially when you're looking at skilled labor, kind of the blue collar folks that are out there on the oil rigs, that are out there working with oil field services, that are out there doing the implementation, the construction, make sure that we're developing a, an economy that they can first participate in, make sure we're developing workforce training, workforce opportunities that, that allows them to uh, prosper and kind of want to open up in that regard. Thank you. Uh, Cindy, I'd love to go to you next to hear BP's perspective. Uh, in February, there was a huge announcement. BP CEO Bernard Looney announced that the company will reorganize its traditional upstream and downstream business structure and reorient around achieving a net zero target by 2050. Uh, you have a wealth of experience working in the oil and gas industry. Tell us a little bit more about your experience here and, and the issues that you're working on now. I understand you're on the leading edge of this. What exactly is BP trying to do here? 
Okay, so um, first of all, hi Julia, thank you for, for having us and including uh, me and BP in today's panel. So uh, kind of BP in a nutshell, in February, as you said, we announced a, a new purpose, you know, reimagining energy for people on our planet. And to make this purpose a reality, we've adopted the ambition to be a net zero company by 2050 or sooner, and to help the world get to net zero carbon. So this will mean tackling about 450 million tons of emissions, 55 million from our operations, and 360 million tons from, of carbon content from our upstream oil and gas uh, production. Just a little bit more uh, kind of nerdy detail here. Our ambition is underpinned by 10 aims. We believe these 10 aims taken together as a package set us out on a path that's consistent with the Paris goals and with our new purpose. So I'm gonna go through these really quickly, so bear with me. Aims one through five are to get BP to net zero. These aims include uh, for BP to be net zero across our entire operations on an absolute basis by 2050 or sooner. Our second aim is to be net zero on an absolute basis across the carbon in our upstream oil and gas production by 2050 or sooner. And those were the two numbers I referenced earlier. Our third aim is to cut the carbon intensity of the products we sell by 50%. Our fourth aim is focused on methane. We'll install methane measurements at all our major existing oil and gas operations and processing sites by 2023, publish the data, and drive a 50% reduction in methane intensity in these operations. Our final BP-focused aim is to get to increase the portion of investments that we make into our non-oil and gas businesses. So then aim six to 10 are really about helping the world get to net zero carbon. And they include um, a more active advocacy for policies that support net zero, including carbon pricing, incentivizing our global workforce to deliver on our aims for them to also be advocates for net zero, that's through compensation. Our eighth aim, setting new expectations for our relationships with trade association. Nine is leading in transparency of our reporting. We feel like that's very important. For some of the reasons that, that Gavin referenced earlier on people watching and uh, the focus of investors. And then finally, and this is one of my favorite aims, we've created uh, a new team to develop integrated clean energy and mobility solutions for cities and regions. So as I mentioned, we launched this new purpose and ambition in February, and we just stood up the new structure on the 1st of July. Uh, we're planning to share more on the strategy and some more detail behind each of these aims and how we'll deliver on our ambition as part of our Capital Markets Day in September. Fantastic. Thanks for running through that. All right, Alex, I'd like to go to you next. Um, oil and gas companies are facing mounting societal pressure to better address the threat of climate change. You recently wrote for the Atlantic Council's Energy Source blog that, uh, quote, in discussions about COVID-19, economic recovery policies, any measures focused on the oil and gas industry are often portrayed as being at odds with a green stimulus. Take a minute to describe your role at Boston Consulting Group, if, if that would help, uh, you know, set us up here and then dive right into that, that comment. What did you mean when you wrote that a green stimulus within the oil and gas industry is not necessarily a contradiction in terms? Thanks, Julia. So just by way of background, I work at BCG's Center for Energy Impact in Washington, D.C. And one of our central jobs really is to work with our clients globally to navigate energy transitions through an understanding of how technology policy and market and consumer trends will shape the future of energy. 
And uh, with that, we really work with clients to identify commercial opportunities uh, for our private sector clients, as well as uh, many of our public sector clients focused on how to uh, promote competitiveness uh, going forward through the energy transition. And really to answer your question, I think our central focus uh, in many ways since March has really been trying to understand how COVID-19 will impact energy transitions in different ways. Ultimately, whether it will uh, be a force that can help to accelerate energy transitions or uh, slow them. And uh, I think what we've found in the U.S. in particular is that there is a real risk that the health, uh, social, and economic impacts coming out of COVID-19 can really de uh, destroy or, or undermine at least uh, governments and, and private sector's economic capacity um, to promote energy transitions. Because what we know is that to deploy clean energy uh, is a very capital intensive process and you need economic stability and capacity um, to do that. So as the U.S. is very much sort of still grappling with this, um, grappling with the immediate uh, health and human impacts and the high unemployment coming out of, of COVID-19, what we've been looking at is where are there areas in the short run that can help to promote employment uh, while also contributing to material emissions reductions. Um, I think a lot of focus is paid toward long-term investments, R&D, uh, of course, and accelerating new technologies for the long term. But the first wave of stimulus in many ways needs to be focused on the real human impacts and uh, promoting employment, stabilizing employment at least. And within that uh, sort of dimension or, or, or ways of thinking about it, um, you know, we, we really uh, have identified three areas in particular where we think the oil and gas industry can uh, play a role, both in terms of achieving those two goals, right, of, of stabilizing employment and reducing emissions in the near term. Uh, first is in, in methane emissions. You know, we, we have all seen the news. This is a very material and has been growing source of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., so I think even modest investments around plugging orphaned wells, um, as well as helping to kick off more systematic, systematic monitoring of methane emissions from our natural gas supply chains is, you know, a quick win on both fronts. Second, energy efficiency. Uh, we've seen in, in other instances how it can be a great promoter of job uh, development. And uh, we know that there's also tremendous opportunity, particularly in downstream oil and gas operations, um, to, to promote energy investment. Uh, investment um, and, and reduce emissions from that front. Uh, and then third, uh, focusing on carbon capture use and storage. There is a tremendous uh, queue of, of projects actually lining up to go forward in the coming years, given the 45Q tax credit that's been adopted. So uh, even some modest measures there to help accelerate the development and deployment of those uh, projects, I, I think could really provide a boost in the short run, while also, of course, um, you know, providing very material emissions reductions. So, um, that, you know, that's our view. It's, it's really, you know, oriented around, uh, I'd, I'd say, quite a pragmatic one in the near term here of, of employment, of jobs, uh, stabilizing the economy uh, and capturing uh, emissions benefits and where the oil and gas industry can really play a role to reduce emissions in the near term here, while, of course, setting up a longer term platform for, I'd say, more you know, sustainable um, growth of stabilizing uh, the oil and gas industry and the industry helping to bring down emissions for the long run. 
Great. Just as a note of context, a new World Bank report came out, I believe just this week, talking about global methane emissions. They're actually on the rise. And so that's not just here in the U.S., but it does show this opportunity for the U.S. to perhaps work globally in tackling that issue. So if anyone's interested in that, direct you to the World Bank for more. RJ, now to you to round out our initial comments. Um, please describe your role at Eurasia Group a little bit more for our audience. And then I'd like to give you the question I gave to Gavin at the beginning. How are you thinking about the intersection of a green stimulus in the wake of COVID-19 and how it could spur efforts of oil and gas companies to decarbonize? Sure. So I'm the uh, managing director for the energy climate and resources practice at Eurasia Group, which is a geopolitical risk uh, advisory firm uh, based in New York. Uh, and we actually rebranded our practice to the name Energy Climate Resources at the beginning of this year because we were getting so much interest from clients, not just in traditional oil and gas geopolitics, but in issues like we're discussing today around the energy transition and climate policy, sustainable finance. So we have analysts covering, I don't know, 100 countries around the world, pretty much all the major oil and gas producers and consumers. We work both with the industry, uh, the production side, upstream, downstream, as well as the financial investors that, uh, that uh, provide capital to the industry. And I think I would focus on that last piece uh, in answering your question, which is even though Eurasia Group is, is political science and international relations and focused on governments, I think that a lot of the interesting things in the decarbonization front and energy transition are happening in capital markets, right? That I think that the capital markets are actually moving a lot faster than governments, not just in the US, where obviously the Trump administration has been fairly indifferent to this issue. But even um, in Europe, the European Union, where capital markets are a key part of the of the new taxonomy that that Brussels is building to support the energy transition, uh, influencing a lot of the key companies based in Europe all along the energy value chain. And I think that what we're seeing is, from a capital markets perspective and green stimulus, I would say there's a lot more potential to tap into capital markets and private markets than there is into government. Right? I think government will play a niche role in, in certain countries like China, where we command and control economy will play a big role. But I think unlocking the power of, of the big banks, the big asset managers, insurance companies, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, all of which are really increasing their focus on decarbonization and looking for projects to deploy their capital to support the energy transition. Now, why are they doing that? It's not, mostly it's not because governments are telling them to, although in some places like maybe Europe they are, it's because they see business opportunity, right? The opportunities really are to, to build a portfolio of sustainable finance projects, uh, whether it's green bonds, whether it's you know, project finance, uh, whether it's portfolios of the um, you know, publicly traded assets that have a green flavor, that's what the customers are looking for. So yes, regulators and policymakers are shaping this, but I think the customer demand for financial products that support the energy transition is extremely high. So then the challenge becomes, as Cindy suggested, how can the uh, legacy oil and gas companies tap into that, those very large funding pools, right? Which frankly are much larger than they are for traditional oil and gas. And we talked about COVID, but let's not forget that even before COVID, the traditional upstream sector was struggling to raise capital with very few exceptions. Now in the midst of COVID, it's an even greater struggle. I would argue that the green stimulus side is the exact opposite. There's actually far more capital than there is investable projects. So I think the work that everyone on this call is doing to create a pipeline of projects, whether it's early stage or, or more mature, is going to be, be well-received by the financial community. 
I want to go back to Gavin first and look at Texas again a little more closely. It is a huge player in the renewable energy sector, obviously also in the oil and gas sector. I'm wondering what opportunities you see a little more specifically for an even greater role for Houston and Texas in this clean energy economy as, as you would define it. How would you uh, yeah, flesh that out a little bit? There is significant and growing opportunity within, within the state, um, especially when you're looking at wind, solar, and well storage opportunities. You know, a lot of the activity is actually coming out, out of Houston. A lot of the development activity, funding activity, trading, um, all comes out of Houston. So we have a very solid base um, within, um, within the city itself and, and Texas, Texas generally. Also, when you, when you look at, you know, kind of expanding out, you know, the renewable energy opportunities within the state, um, there has to be some significant investment and, and focus in some particular areas. Um, one of the issues that are, that are right now limiting some of the development within, within the state, especially around wind, is the amount of congestion um, that's on the transmission distribution lines. There were these competitive renewable energy zone um, lines, transmission distribution lines that were created and built several years ago that really allowed for the wind uh, market to develop and bring the wind from West Texas into the urban, urban centers of the, of the state. Um, there's now significant congestion on those. There needs to be growing emphasis on how do we reduce congestion and allow the increasing capacity to happen out there. To kind of offset some of that congestion, you're seeing solar, which has a different um, kind of, you know, usage profile than, than wind does. And so we're seeing a lot more storage going out there, but soon, you know, that, that could lead to capacity issues as well. And so there needs to be just greater investment in the transmission distribution infrastructure, just greater investment in infrastructure in general. When we're looking at the, the oil and gas companies and looking at some of the transition happens, there's going to be a lot of discussion on, on of course, CCUS. There's going to be a lot of discussions on you know, bringing in blue hydrogen and kind of reducing the carbon footprint of, of hydrogen development, how that can be used uh, in a variety of industrial processes as well as transportation. But also we need to think about, you know, especially when you're, for example, with, with BP, there's, they have significant capabilities with offshore type development. How do we use and utilize those capacities to really improve our opportunities around offshore wind development? There's a lot of know-how there. There's a lot of engineering capacity, a lot of project management understanding of how you build these complex offshore type infrastructure. And so looking to oil and gas companies as they look to decarbonize and look at the energy transition to take those steps is going to be, is going to be really key, um, key as well. And just to key off of that, Cindy, uh, I know you're having more details coming in September on BP's plans, but when you hear things like oil and gas knowledge and know-how and leveraging that in the clean energy space, is, can you comment on that at all? Is that something you're focusing efforts on? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'm going to kind of key off of something that, that Gavin just said. You know, so we talked a little bit about uh, sort of reimagining BP and our new model actually focuses on four core capabilities, operations, customers, low carbon and innovation. And then um, we were working with a team of integrators and enablers to actually create value from that. But just to build on um, Gavin's point, our operations are upstream and downstream and alternative energy, which brings all that capability together into one place so that we can apply the lessons that we've learned and the experiences you know, across traditional oil and gas opportunities, but also into uh, new developments. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, just a few business, develop, uh, business investments we've made recently. We've, we just uh, announced a 
50-50 venture with LightSource BP uh, with a quarter of billion dollars financing for a solar project in uh, Lamar, Texas. Uh, we just acquired, um, or we announced last week that we're acquiring 50% uh, of uh, wind farm in at Fowler Ridge in Indiana that we already operate. And of course, uh, carbon capture use and storage will definitely be part of the levers that contribute to the realization of our ambition. One of the big ones that many of you will have heard about is uh, net zero Teesside in the UK, which has the potential to be the UK's first commercial full value chain CCUS project. And we've joined that as a technical lead partner as part of the oil and gas climate initiative. So we're super excited about CCUS because it can achieve uh, deep emissions reductions in parts of the economy where renewables are technically or on are not economically feasible. And we're super bullish on hydrogen. It's been big in places like Europe and and the UK for sorry Europe and Japan for a while, but it's starting to gain traction in the U.S. So. Just to close this one out, uh, back to your question on approach, one of the phrases that we hear a lot externally and certainly internally we've been using is this sort of building back better. And so we want to be a part of the efforts to do that. And it, I think it just underpins why moving forward with an ambition of zero net carbon by 2050 or sooner is so important to, to all of us. I could stick with you for a moment, Cindy, and just put it in this current moment. Um, you know, coronavirus has triggered a historic slump in demand for fossil fuels. There's also volatility earlier in the year created by the Saudi-Russia price war. In June, BP announced that it will cut up to $17.5 billion in value from its oil and gas assets and may be forced to leave some discoveries in the ground after its own forecast found the COVID-19 pandemic may affect the world's oil demand for potentially up to 30 years. The company said in a statement that, man that the management team would review its plans to develop new projects in light of growing expectation that the global pandemic would accelerate the pace of transition to a lower carbon economy and energy system. So just to put it again in this moment, how is BP able to keep its focus on this, on these new ventures, on, on spending in these new areas when its traditional business is going through this, you know, rocky moment and there's just a lot of chaos in markets overall, both in oil and gas and in clean energy. So how are you keeping your eye on the prize here? <laughs> and so I'll, I'll speak more as a as a um, an individual here than than as a, you know sort of on behalf of BP, but you know we have been taking steps like we've recast our our price deck as you know we we wrote down some of our um, some of our assets and we we are certainly as part of the restructuring looking to uh, to cut back and focus on you know the really crystal clear priorities. But you know, as as some as a company that's been traditionally oil and gas, you know, we we do know how to um, address the volatility of, of markets, and so we we have uh, the ability to to cut back. We we know how to respond uh, when in down cycles, and and we're pulling the uh, you know the levers that we um, traditionally use, as well as you know, looking to the future at, at what are the new businesses, uh, what will be potentially more stable businesses, you know, there's, there's uh, sort of science and thinking that, you know, renewables might actually help us get a little bit out of the ups and downs that the oil and gas industry has faced, faced for a while. So um, we're, you know, we're, we're addressing that, like, kind of all of our um, comrades and we're just focusing on what we believe could be, you know, the strongest business models 
for us moving forward and strengthening the, the corporate balance sheet in the meantime. I guess, RJ, uh, to go to you, uh, are you seeing that play out in what oil and gas industry players are looking for in terms of stable returns from clean energy projects? And by that, I mean more renewable energy projects, energy storage, electricity sector services. To what extent is that an opportunity for these firms to uh, make money, basically, and, and get through this crisis? Well, that's, of course, the big question, right? I think that even the national oil companies, the government-owned oil companies, around the world are having to wrestle with that, not just the publicly traded uh, IOCs. So the way we're thinking about this is, you know, a lot of these companies have demonstrated the ability to de successfully develop profitable, clean tech, renewable projects at the project level. But I think what Cindy's talking about is more enterprise level transformation, right? And I think that's where the market is, you know, it understandably still, I don't skeptical right world, but still looking for more data and more detail. BP is actually provided more than most because it does, it does transform the whole organization. And we're moving from a model where the industry basically uh, invested to acquire reserves and the expectation was the value of the reserves would go up every year. And the companies that produce them efficiently were rewarded in the marketplace. That model is basically dead, right? I think that you know BP and some of the European peers understand that are, are moving past it. The market, I think the patient capital, the longer term institutional investors will, will go with them on that journey. Those who are looking for short-term returns may be disappointed, but I think the challenge really is how do you stitch it all together, right? You know, everything we've mentioned, wind, hydrogen, CCS, LNG, uh, electric vehicle charging stations, solar, battery storage, right? How, how does that all integrate in the same way that the traditional upstream, midstream, downstream value chain for oil and gas existed? That's what everyone's still trying to figure out. But again, I think it's good that some companies at least are, are thinking about the total transformation at the enterprise level not just kind of a project here or project there. Alex, I guess I'll put a similar question to you. How are you seeing the breakdown in focus between some of the things you mentioned, CCS, addressing methane leaks, efficiency, things that are within the traditional wheelhouse of an oil and gas you know, company versus investments in new areas like EV charging to, you know, Shell became an electricity provider in the UK, things like that. Are, how are you seeing the focus breakdown uh, in your analysis? Well, I'll say it's highly differentiated on both a company and a country level. Uh, now, both uh, of those types of measures, the sort of scope one and two emissions uh, from own operations, as well as scope three from shifting towards a lower carbon portfolio of businesses overall, um, both of those types of measures will play an absolutely critical role in reducing um, emissions intensity of these companies and ultimately driving energy transitions forward down the line. Uh, I think scope three type of measures have gotten a lot of attention, but one thing we've found with our clients is there is tremendous potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in aggregate, focusing on scope one and two. Um, and one of the points I like to emphasize is that if we think of oil and gas value chains, sort of from, from well to wheels or burner tip, um, right, about 20% of the emissions is embedded in scope one and two for the production, transformation, processing, transport, et cetera, um, of those hydrocarbons to, to the end source. And we know that a lot of the measures that can help to reduce those emissions are some of the lowest hanging fruit, you know, in terms of cost and, and ease to do, um, you know, in terms of, of methane emissions, uh, energy efficiency, a couple of the th topics I mentioned before. So I think companies are rightfully focusing on uh, a basket of both of those. And, and it sort of depends, right? 
um, for your European IOCs, um, what we're seeing is is a real combination because in many ways they have uh, already pursued a lot of the scope one and two emissions reduction measures in the past. Um, they have some of the the lower kind of carbon intensity uh, of production to begin with, um, and so inherently, you know, with a push towards net zero in Europe, uh, that they you know need to look towards towards scope three and diversify. Whereas national oil companies, uh, who are the sort of largest producers fundamentally of oil and gas resources globally, they have a lot of headroom on the scope one and two emissions and can uh, really significantly impact global greenhouse gas emissions with fairly modest investments. Um, what we found is quite striking, actually, how uh, cheap it ultimately is to, to have a big impact there. I think where there's more uncertainty is, is here in the U.S., um, right, among the U.S. majors and, and the independents. Um, we've seen more of a focus so far on just the scope one and two, um, less commitments around diversifying on their scope three emissions. But, you know, that may change going forward for picking up with what, what RJ mentioned. Um, the investor pressure is increasing on this and uh, investors are looking for what the long term viability of the of the business model is for these companies, um, not just necessarily how can they uh, have a dent in emissions in the short run. And RJ, can I ask you to build on that? At what point, looking here partially through a political lens, because there's pressure coming from activists and folks in the clean energy and climate community, to have oil and gas companies actually curb production? You know, we're seeing some big, bold uh, commitments from the oil and gas sector to reduce emissions. OGCI had an announcement this week, a group of oil and gas uh, companies agreeing to cut their emissions, but production is not part of that. So I wanted to put it to you, this pricklier question of at what point does that enter the conversation, if, if ever? Well, I think every year that goes by without meaningful government action on climate policy, the risk of of a so-called inevitable policy response, where you have you know production curtailments um, in the context of deteriorating global climate and weather conditions uh, that were mentioned earlier, that that risk grows. So, I think when you look at the impairments that the companies have announced, there's almost an implicit uh, shutdown of production embedded in some of those announcements that reserves that won't be developed under the current price outlook or, or demand outlook. But as far as shutting off existing fields, it may be interesting to assess whether some of the fields that, that have been shut um, as part of COVID, whether those maybe stay idle. I've heard that for one or two, but for the, maybe in the oil sands a little bit here and there. But for the most part, I think most of that production has come back on and will be needed as the market rebalances 2021, 2022. Um, so, so far, I don't think we've seen much evidence yet that there's pressure, but I think investors are worried that at some point, if there isn't uh, enough steps being taken towards implementing the Paris Agreement, and we do have some kind of climate shock, that there could be a much more abrupt transition. Uh, and then there's some that simply feel that, that would be a more efficient path, right, to, to you know, shut in production versus creating new sources of demand. So I would say there's a lot of uncertainty around this area, for sure. And it does impact investor confidence in the outlook for the sector. Thank you. Gavin, going back to you, uh, we are in, still in the midst of a public health and economic crisis, but conversations have already started to turn toward resilience and, as Cindy mentioned, building back better and staving off uh, the impacts of a future crisis, either like COVID or climate-fueled ones, perhaps. So how are you thinking about resilience in the Houston context or even nationally? How is that word factoring into the green stimulus discussions? So... We, we've actually been actively involved with the, with the city of Houston on its climate action planning efforts and its uh, resilience planning efforts. 
And when you talk about resilience, it's, you know, there, there's a wide variety of concerns around that as far as social resilience, economic resilience, um, climate resilience, infrastructure resilience. And so all those pieces are really needing to, to come together uh, to some degree to make, make, things, make things work here. And so one of, the, one of the key issues that we continue to run into, and especially in the context of COVID-19, um, is, is really looking at kind of community resilience and economic resilience for those that are, that are directly impacted by a lot of this stuff. And a lot of, we've had a lot of discussions about essential workers versus non-essential workers. And, you know, the, the impact that's happening on essential workers, and those are a lot of those that, that are involved with day-to-day you know, operation of construction and implementation of large projects, and those that are really involved with kind of making the wheel spin for the economy and such, and to make sure that they have a continued opportunity to participate in the market, uh, to have an opportunity to continue to, uh, to have the jobs that are necessary to, 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 in order to, you know, take care of themselves, take care of their family, take care of the community is going to be key. And we can't lose, lose sight of that when we start talking about this transition that's happening there. Um, it really needs to be a key focus to make sure that when we're talking about new technologies and we're talking about automation of things and improving efficiencies, um, that the people that are, that are associated with this, that the people that are really driving the economy have an opportunity to, to allow things to, to move forward there. And a lot of that's going to be investment in our education system. A lot of that's both K through 12, as well as our trade schools, our colleges, our universities, making sure that there's that opportunity there, making sure we build out a, a kind of an innovation ecosystem. We recently had um, Greentown Labs come to Houston, join Houston, which is really gonna really help with kind of the innovation ecosystem within Houston. But we need that type of activity to continue to happen as well. So we need the, we need the transition to happen that leads to decarbonization, but we also need to make sure that people that are essential to the, to the economic growth and development of the, of the city and of the state um, continue to have the opportunities. You know, if there needs to be a transition from the oil field, how does that transition happen? And to make sure we make that as, as equitable and as fair as possible for them and keep them in mind during this process. Hey, Julie, can I add to that? As someone who lived in Houston for many years and, and has a lot of sympathy and uh, affection for the city, you know, sometimes it's easy to, to think about kind of despair in terms of energy transition and, you know, a just transition of oil and gas workers. And obviously it's a cyclical industry. We've been through rounds of disruption. But for perspective, um, you know, the IEA sustainable development scenario, which is their pathway for one and a half degree scenario, still has 68 million barrels a day of oil demand in 2040, which, which is based around about $600 billion a year of fossil fuels investment. And that, that's the low carbon scenario, right? So ab- above that, it's actually much higher. So I think for Houston, my advice really is, you know, in addition to everything that my colleagues are talking about here, but the transition, what can Houston do to position itself to, to be a, a leader in producing the 68 million barrels we're still going to need in, in 2040, right? And I think investors will be looking for resources that are uh, low cost, low risk, and low carbon on the oil and gas side. And I think many companies in Houston are, are taking advantage of the ecosystem there to look at how to produce fields uh, along those lines, how to electrify the upstream, how to reduce the, the scope one and scope two emissions, as was mentioned earlier. Uh, and so I think there is a long tail here for oil and gas. Gas, I didn't mention as much, but even on the oil side, you know, even in a peak demand world, you still have $600 billion a year of investment uh, going into sectors. So that's probably something to keep in mind as well. 
Cindy, I know you're, uh, you work a lot in the Houston area on these types of issues. So I'd love to get your thoughts. And we have in a question from the audience, if you don't mind, just to build on this. Uh, we're talking about jobs still in the oil and gas sector, but uh, Corey asks about potential opportunities to transition high-skilled workers into green energy jobs if they want them, pointing to layoffs that have already happened in the Houston area from Exxon, for instance. So how is BP thinking about not only the bigger question of jobs and resilience, but then this transition question? Are you taking folks from inside your own organization and moving them into greener areas of the business? Uh, any insight you can provide would be great. Okay, um, so Julie, I think to address the, the, you know, how do you transfer people around, you know, we're really starting to get our arms around how transferable the skills are. So my background's in geology, and we talked to a lot of folks about, you know, did I join the wrong industry and focus in the subsurface? So geology, petroleum engineering, reservoir engineering, and the truth is, as, as you really get into the uh, planning and execution of these projects, there are going to be loads of roles for the scientists, engineers, the project developers that I think are fungible. And so it's really just kind of seeing, seeing the opportunities out there. So um, I, I think there's you know, a great future for transferring the skills that you've learned, uh, knowing your craft in oil and gas and applying them to, to other projects. So I think then I'll come back to your the first part of your question about, you know, the, the energy transition and Houston's the energy capital of the world and we want it to stay that way. To me, that means it's the home, the headquarters and the intellectual center for all aspects of all forms of energy. So historically, this has been focused on oil and gas, but as the world's energy options grow, so does the expertise here in Houston. And we're seeing the, the commitment to that from the city. Uh, we've had a couple of references, uh, Gavin talked about the city's climate action plan, and, and certainly at BP, it's, it's very similar to ours, to be carbon neutral by 2050. And so we're really excited about Mayor Turner and the city's efforts, and we look forward to opportunities to collaborate in, in that area. Houston's business community is active and engaged. You know, Bobby Tudor, who's the chair of the Greater Houston Partnership, has made energy transition his top priority. And he and Bob Harvey, JHP's president and CEO, have assured that the Houston community is focused in welcoming all forms of the energy business into Houston. I'll, I'll kind of stop there. I can keep going on and on about the opportunities for Houston and priorities, but it, there are a lot of good things to, to share from, from this site. Great. Turning to another uh, set of audience questions, this is around carbon capture and sequestration. Um, they're asking the panel to comment short-term impact of COVID-19 on the ability for 45Q, you know, the tax program, to drive CCUS projects. If you make less profit, you pay less tax. In theory, that, that mechanism would not be as effective. Um, and in general, uh, building another question, what is the potential for carbon capture and sequestration as part of this green mix? So maybe Alex, I'll go to you first on that one. Absolutely. So I think the really important thing about 45Q uh, is that the tax credit is transferable. And what we've seen work in renewables in the form of tax equity investment uh, of, of investors effectively pooling their resources, capturing that tax, cre tax credit, and then using it against other tax liabilities elsewhere is a similar type of model that can be used in 45Q. So uh, it's really meant to be resilient through business cycles and in effect um, to effectively be you know, a cost of carbon. And, and that's really the remarkable thing, I, I think, about 45Q 
is is for storage. You know, it is a fifty dollar per ton carbon price that the federal government has has implemented um, for utilization. It's it's thirty five dollars per ton, and and so it is the farthest reaching, I would say, economic incentive globally for for CCUS, um, and and I think one that that really will be resilient going forward. Uh, and I think the U.S. Uh, not just from from sort of a short run perspective here in terms of uh, the stimulus uh, for providing jobs um, uh, for, for oil and gas sector workers. You know, as, as Cindy was just, just talking about, this is a, a great space where you have a high transferability from the traditional oil and gas. I mean, it literally is dealing in the subsurface as well as um, all the surface level components here and the engineering capabilities, um, but, but is an opportunity uh, as well to promote U.S. competitiveness in the sector going forward. We, we know from all of the modeling that, that carbon capture will need to play an uh, incredibly central role to meeting a, you know, well below two degrees or getting anywhere close to it, frankly. And uh, I think the U.S. leading the way here on CCUS is, is not just good for you know, an opportunity for the climate, um, but also for promoting global competitiveness. Cindy, to turn back to you on that, um, how is BP thinking about carbon capture sequestration? And I want to add the caveat that this technology has been around for a while. It's still quite expensive. And, you know, there's questions about just how much mitigation you can get at what cost. Um, So just to put those tougher questions to you, what's the reality of what the outlook is? Yeah, so I think um, RJ did a great job of sort of framing, you know, that, that we will continue to have oil and gas. And um, so I wanted to be really clear, the way we think about it at BP and the way we talked about it in the National Petroleum Council carbon capture use and storage study that we just published this year is that CCUS is not the only answer, but it can actually play a critical part of the sort of all of the above solution. And, uh, you know, RJ mentioned the IEA sustainable development solution that shows that if we apply this sort of all the tools in the toolkit, CCUS could potentially address about 10% of the world's CO2. And so it's not the only answer, but it's a great answer because of what you said, Julia, we can do it today. We've got proven technologies. So um, the kind of great news is that we predict with uh, the clarity that the IRS is um, is providing on 45Q that we will see, see investments. There's still some some questions out there like, uh, you know, project implementation date. I think most people are looking to see if that could be extended a bit more. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's a great start. And um, so we're, we're pretty bullish on CCUS. As I said, you know, we've, we've got a project in the UK. We'll have other projects globally. And, um, you know, kind of just tying it back into Houston, The Gulf Coast offers a great opportunity for carbon capture. We've got industrial gases up and down the coast. We've got fantastic storage opportunities. Uh, We've got sailing reservoirs in the subsurface, both onshore and offshore, and also producing fields. The biggest area, of course, is the Permian, but there are some some other areas as well. Um, We're such an innovation center that the use part of carbon capture is being researched by uh, these innovators who are you know, working in Houston, folks like Greentown Labs and others who are looking to create products from CO2, fuels and fertilizer and, you know, fun things like diamonds and carbon nanotools. Uh, last point, CCUS doesn't only capture emissions from power generations, but it's also vital for decarbonizing cement and steel, where process emissions are actually pretty hard to debate, to abate. And sort of where else do you see so much cement and steel 
than Houston. So. RJ, I want to give you a, a prickly political question. We're talking about a green stimulus. Uh, here in the U.S., there's discussions of another round of stimulus, but it may be more targeted on, you know, helping workers and families, not so much industries. We'll see how that plays out. But the point is a green stimulus is not on the immediate agenda as it looks, uh, as it looks like right now. So how do you see that entering the conversation? And again, to put it in the context, uh, currently, oil and gas firms have benefited from the Paycheck Protection Program that was already passed by Congress earlier this year. There's been pushback among activists saying they've received a lot of money, somewhere from 2.2 billion to 4.91 billion in loans and potentially an additional 2 billion in other kinds of government support just in the wake of the pandemic. And that has no green elements attached to it. So to put it to you, what is the right way to approach a green stimulus that benefits the oil and gas industry's transition given that there's tension around where government dollars go? Yeah, again, I think you asked me a prickly question, I'll either prickly answer it. I, I think that if I were a U.S. oil and gas company, I would I would bypass the government and go directly to the private sector and, and not get, you know, I live in Washington, make my living in Washington, but I wouldn't waste time in Washington, at least until after the election, looking for green dollars. So I would either go to the private sector, I would go to the Europe, European Union. Now, obviously, they're going to be funding projects mostly within Europe. T-side was mentioned, there's a bunch of others like that. The question is, how much will that change under the Biden administration? There's certainly a very broad ambition to do a massive green stimulus with, with wind and solar, energy efficiency, electric vehicles, cash for clunkers, hydrogen, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a lot will depend on what happens in, in Congress, right? If, if they can get control of the Senate, if they eliminate the filibuster rule, um, you know, there's a lot of things that could happen to, to, to get some of the screen spending moving forward. But then there would be the question of, would you start to see some backlash at the state level from industry and the courts, like we've seen with both Obama and Trump on energy policy issues. So I'm pretty cautious about the availability of public sector dollars. I think, frankly, when you mentioned the city of Houston's net zero goal or this, you know, different states in the U.S., there, there may be some interesting opportunities at the state and local level that, that might move faster than what happens in Washington. But generally speaking, I think that, again, because there's such an abundance of investors looking for projects in the private sector, I think there's plenty of capital out there um, without having to go through uh, Capitol Hill. Gavin, I know you're based in Houston, you focus there, but there have been a bunch of uh, bills and proposals coming out of Washington. The House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis had its 500-page bill on a green stimulus. Joe Biden released uh, his climate platform. Can you pull anything from those recent announcements and how they're factoring into your thinking about the green stimulus? I think things that we've been focusing on in that regard is really some of the efforts that are discussing um, kind of the RD, D, and D, the research, development, demonstration, and deployment investment that needs to happen. I think there are some key opportunities, um, especially within within Houston, that are looking at um, how how do we build that that infrastructure and the ability to have that type of funding coming out of Department of Energy or other types of federal agencies to help support that early stage research and development. Um, as well as focusing on just the deployment and demonstration of that of those uh, technologies as well. Um, there's there's a lot more activity out of DOE right now looking at commercial validation and technology validation that I think uh, Houston and, and the state in general can take advantage of. We have a very strong resource of you know universities and colleges and a really strong innovation hub that's developing in Houston. Um, a, I, so I think, you know, we need to start really taking advantage of that type of efforts and really kind of focus um, a lot of the, our, our desire of the green stimulus to really help us with that, with that transition happening there. So 
Um, I think anything that can help us on the early stage development and the commercialization of some of these technologies is going to be, is going to be key. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can reach us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. We're also on Instagram with the same handle. And while you're here, remember to hit subscribe if you haven't already. I'll be back on Monday with another episode of Ditched. In the meantime, have a great rest of your week.